It's so great to have you in here with me today. We kind of got some special permission from the construction crew to be in here to record. Um, since we are no longer in 1708 Baltimore at all, we thought that it would be really fun to record today's service or parts of today's service inside and around the new downtown campus. So with that in mind, let's read today's scripture. It comes from Revelation chapter 6, the whole of chapter 6. We're going to walk through that together. So hear God's word to us. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll, that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word and how you continue to reveal yourself. We ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us wisdom on how to navigate this particular genre of apocalyptic literature. Holy Spirit, illuminate your truth to us. Help us to be good students of your word as well as good followers of your word. God, thank you that you have spoken, that you have revealed, and will continue to reveal to your church in every generation what faithfulness and fruitfulness looks like in their cultural moment. Do that for us today as we seek to follow you. We praise your name. 
Lord Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Now, some of you may remember Palm Sunday, April 2017. There were twin suicide bombings that took place at St. George's Church in the northern Egyptian city of Tanta and St. Mark's Coptic Orthodox Cathedral, which was the central church in Alexandria. Christians were targeted and at least 45 lost their lives alongside of 126 who were injured. You may remember June 17, 2015, in Charleston, South Carolina, where nine African-American Christians were gunned down during a Bible study at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church by white supremacist Dylan Roof. These are just two of the countless stories that have happened over the millennia, not to mention the many and upon many of stories that never made it to the media. There are so many people who have been overlooked and hidden in their persecution, their pain, and their suffering. People like Majadreza, a Christian convert who has been in Evan prison since November 2017, serving a two-year sentence for membership of an evangelical group and conducting evangelism. Or like Sahib, serving a 10-year sentence in Evan prison since July 2018. Or, in September 2018, Zaman was given a separate sentence of 18 months in prison for spreading propaganda against the regime. For the gospel always speaks truth to power. These are just a couple of our Iranian brothers and sisters, some of them part of the network of house churches we support through Elam, that the broader Christ community group of churches that we support, and currently they're in prison for their faith. And we could go on to talk about the padlocks on the churches in China that have forced many of our brothers and sisters to go underground. We could talk about the hardship in Europe, the demonization here in the United States. We could talk about genocide in Africa and on and on. I mean, this has been happening to the church since Acts chapter 2, when Jesus founded the church and it began to gather together in his name under the banner, Jesus is Lord, which is in complete revolt to the framework of Caesar is Lord. But how has the church endured this for so long? This is where we cue the book of Revelation. We're walking through this astounding spirit-shaped work of art that points to a day when everything, I mean everything sad, will actually become untrue. And there are moments when this future reality breaks in and it feels like whispers of what's to come, these small hints, these foretastes of the glorious beauty of restoration that's to come. And it leaves us aching, wondering, when is this day going to come? Or maybe better yet, a question we need to ask ourselves quite frequently, how do we endure the sadness now while we're waiting? What about the hardship? What about the persecution? What about the sadness we experience today. And this is actually one of the central questions that the book of Revelation addresses. And it really begins to address it here in chapter 6, where things start to get a little funky, right? It starts to get pretty bizarre. But crucially, this is how this begins to be addressed in a really subversive, unique way. And today, what we're going to see is that if we want to endure the sadness, if you and I want to be faithful, in the presence and the culture in which we find ourselves, we need to learn three crucial hows. Three crucial hows. Here's the first one. We actually need to learn how to read this, okay? 
Now, for a moment here, this is going to feel a little bit more like a classroom because, like I said, this is when it gets really bizarre, and so we have to do a little bit of hard work to study God's Word and to know its context, all right? We don't, have to, we don't necessarily have the natural inclination or the intuition to be able to think apocalyptically. It's not something that we naturally do in the 21st century modern Western world. It's not that somehow this is hidden knowledge. I don't want to go so far as to say that, but it is a different genre. So it requires certain tools and training and study that need to be expanded as we step into that. And because of that, it's not straightforward for us today, but absolutely still crucial for our endurance. Secondly, we need humility here. Now, I'm confident of some of the broader themes and the big picture of Revelation. I mean, astoundingly confident as to the beauty of what's on display. But there are a lot of areas where there's a lot of debate between really thoughtful followers of Jesus who just disagree. So we all need to be approaching this text with a bit of humility and a bit of grace with one another. Can we do that as we step into the areas that have more debate? Agree? Okay, excellent, excellent. So let's jump into chapter 6. Now, as way of review, we remember from chapter 4 and 5 that the Lamb of God, he has taken the scroll and he begins to open it. This scroll is God's plan of redemption to bring heaven and earth together where it's beautiful, it's perfect, it's complete, where everything sad is on its way to becoming untrue. And Jesus, who is the Lion, the Lamb, God himself, is the only one in all of history who has the authority to actually open this scroll. In chapter 6, Jesus begins to open the seven seals on the scroll, like these wax-style seals. He's popping them off one by one. And each seal reveals some new disaster or vision. So let's look at these. The first four seals are the infamous horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, these aren't my daughter's My Little Ponies, right, that she's just obsessed with right now. These are the worst things for humanity. This is war and conquest. This is pestilence. This is famine. This is plague that is just wrecking havoc on humanity. And in chapter 6, verse 8, we see that they are allowed to kill a quarter, one-fourth of the population. By the time we get to the fifth seal, it takes us back up to heaven. And we actually experience a bit of an interlude. And this is at the heart of this section. So I actually want to read this passage for us. It's verses 9 through 11 of chapter 6. We read, When he, speaking of Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What's abundantly clear here is that God sees them. All who have died on account of their faith in Jesus throughout history. And they're asking God to end the sadness here and now, to judge the world. And what God says is, no, 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 not yet. And he puts white robes on them. He comforts them. He encourages them to rest. He tells them the victory is sure. But this, maybe most importantly, he says, more suffering is still to come. Then we move to the sixth seal. And this, in this particular moment, all of the heavens are undone. 
You see that the sun is darkened, the moon turns to blood, stars fall. A lot of these are themes, if you think in Old Testament categories, in the prophets of the Old Testament, these are a lot of the themes that are on display of the day of the Lord, the day that God comes and actually brings his righteous justice and judgment to earth. And what happens at the end of chapter 6 is that people hide from God. The question rings out, who can stand before one who is so righteous and holy. And so we turn to chapter 7. In chapter 7, we find four angels, and they're at the four corners of the world, and they're allowed to, once again, wreak havoc on the earth. But then another angel stops them first. And in verse 3 we read, Do not harm the sea or the earth or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And so John singles out one group that does stand tall. If chapter 6 ends with this rhetorical question, who can stand, we actually see a massive group of people who are able to stand. 144,000 people are sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there's some important understanding that needs to be done here. First off, 12,000 from each tribe is meant to communicate completeness. These numbers are symbolic and are very intentional to communicate that there is a perfect number, that not one of them has fallen outside of God's radar. Now also, when you see the 12 tribes listed here in chapter 7, there's a unique order in which the tribes are listed. Alongside of that, there are unique heads of tribes that are named. This is not the normal, ordinary flow of the Jewish 12 tribes. And every first century Jewish person would have picked up on that quite quickly. You see, John hears of 144,000 sealed of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then what does he see? When you get to verse 9, we come to see that it's not just Jewish people. It's actually people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group. Okay, so this is an extraordinarily rich fulfillment that verse 9 is pointing us back to that this is an extraordinary group of diverse people that God is sealing for himself. A multitude that is worshiping the Lamb that we saw back in verse 5 as well. Now, this is the second time we've seen something. This is kind of a literary device. First, John hears something that lines up with an Old Testament prophecy. But then he sees the New Testament fulfillment through Christ, and it's always surprising. It's much more surplus. So, for example, we see that God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis was to multiply a family that is bigger, that becomes a blessing to the world. And what we come to see is that the ones that God seals here are not an exclusion of the Jewish people, but actually an inclusion of every people, group, every nation, and every tongue. It's a surplus. It's beautiful. In the framework of Isaiah, when he goes to describe God, this is a perfect example of his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. They're much higher, more brilliant, and more beautiful, but his word will always accomplish its purpose. On to chapter 8. We come to the final seal out of the seven seals. And when this seal is opened, something astounding happens. There's silence in all of heaven for 30 years minutes. Seven angels are then handed each a trumpet, but then one angel is attending a golden altar, and this should bring to mind the ancient uh, temple of Jerusalem. 
And, and there it's filled with incense, representing the prayers of God's people. And they rise to God. And it's because of these prayers that God actually acts. And this is extraordinarily powerful. Because this isn't just some prayers. This is all prayers coming up before him, asking God to judge, to save, to act. And they finally culminate. They fill up. And then the angel adds fire and pours them back down on the earth. And this, I believe, is where we begin to understand or the, the, the final judgment is pointed to. But rather than continuing to unpack the progression of this picture and this particular narrative thread, John shifts to the seven angels who have now been equipped with these trumpets. Each trumpet is actually a new series of judgments that go up to chapter 15, and then at chapter 16, we switch to seven bowls of wrath. And we're going to cover those later. But for now, I want you on a macro level to notice this theme of sevens, all right? So we've got the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. We've covered one of them, and there are two more to come. And there's a lot of debate around these, a whole lot of debate. As for me, I, I, I genuinely have been deeply impressed by a Grant Osborne, his commentary on Revelation. He was actually one of my professors. He's a well-known Johannine scholar who's done extensive research and does an excellent job bringing together a coherent thread as to how to navigate the apocalyptic literature we find in Revelation. And he shows how these three series of seven describe actually the same period, not seeing them as seven, 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 but actually see them as overlapping. Okay, And the time period in which they're covering is Jesus' ascension all the way to his return. What is often called by some theologians as the church age, the time in which we find ourselves now. Each series of seven describes the time we find ourselves and ends with the final judgment. Okay, So this is to be, I want to be clear, this, the way we're, I'm viewing this here and, and seeking to understand Revelation that many scholars lean into and see as the best way to kind of navigate the text is seeing these three groups of seven not as a progression, but actually as repetition of the same themes, much like you see in music, where you would come back to the chorus, but then you would add in a new drum line. You'd come back to the chorus again, and now you're bringing in the saxophone. Why would you bring in a saxophone? I don't know. I love a good saxophone. I'm just saying there's good repetition to the themes here that are going in a cycle. There's a patterning that's absolutely crucial to notice, such that when we come to Revelation chapter 8. And each cycle, it builds to a climax, more rich each time the further you go on. So in each of these sevens, what's also fascinating to note is that we see a reverse of Genesis chapter 1. So remember, Revelation is kind of the culmination, the bookend of Scripture. Genesis is the introduction, the beginnings of this broader biblical story and what God's doing. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see God bringing order out of chaos. And each of these cycles of seven, we actually see chaos being spewn out in the midst of order. The world is coming undone. That's what we're seeing on display. We good? Clear as mud? Very easy to navigate, right? Well, there's a lot here. I mean, so much more. But I wanted to give you a little bit of scaffolding on how to navigate these seven or these three cycles 
of seven. And we're just scratching the surface, so I would encourage you to be reading through these regularly, repeatedly, to start to notice some of these themes and see how they're repeating through these various cycles. Now, maybe at this point you just want to take a breather and fast forward to the communion segment of our time together. Take a breath, grab a little snack, remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and then come back to the rest of the service. I don't know. Feels like it's been a lot already, but hang with me. And some of you may be thinking, Gabe, this is really interesting, but what does this have to do with our overarching question? How do we endure sadness now? Like, why do we need to learn to read this? Why can't I just hold on to Jesus? Because here John is, he's actually showing us what to expect from God now. And if we read this wrong, we'll actually have ill-formed expectations that will lead us towards disappointment or a malformed way of living. And so we will be crushed in the sadness. So not only, number one, do we need to learn how to read this, we need to, number two, we need to expect how God works through us. You see, we get a window into God's strategy in the book of Revelation, his patterning of redemption. And there's a threefold movement that's absolutely brilliant. The first movement we come to see is that these seven seals are God's judgment because of sin. Number one, God brings judgment. You see, the horsemen are actually the result of our activity. The horsemen are the result of our idolatry, our adultery, our xenophobia, our greed, our racism, our bigotry, all of these pieces coming together are hate. And they lead to destruction. We are our own worst enemy. And the evil one, the Satan, Satan, he actually exacerbates this. And so we are the ones who invited sin into the picture. And what we see is that God lets our consequences play out. War, sickness, famine, struggle, heartache. Here's a fun little tidbit. It's already been proven many times over that there's enough food in the world to feed every person in the world. And yet there are so many people still in the world starving. Is that a lack of resources? Or is that a broken reality within our culture, humanity, and the hearts of every human being? You see, these are the consequences of the decisions that you and I are making. We begin to so feel the sadness that we know that the world isn't the way it ought to be. When God is not at his rightful place in the center. And so, returning back to Revelation 4 and 5 with him at the center of our worship. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying that everything is your fault or my fault. Don't hear that. And frankly, we can get overly individualistic. But we are a part of a broader collective called humanity. And as we make decisions, our decisions have consequences and repercussions that trickle out to broader communities, nations, and even on a global scale. And what this is, is a reminder, a reminder of the brokenness. And that's what all of the God's judgment is, is a reminder that the world is not right until he is rightfully in the center. So why would he let that happen? Why would he let these consequences go that far? Well, it's because it's meant to bring us to repentance. Number two, the second part in this pattern is that God longs for repentance. He whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain, as the brilliant theologian C.S. Lewis has said. And really, all of these disasters should point us back to another ancient story, the story of the Exodus, where plague after plague came upon Egypt and specifically Pharaoh. Why? To change his mind repent. 
to finally free God's people from bondage into the wilderness. But he continually hardened his heart. And instead of repenting and changing his mind, he continually dug his feet deeper and deeper into the soil until one of the greatest costs came upon his family. The same is true here with the, mer- the various uh, pains and heartache that enters into the world. And in each of these sevens, what's so fascinating and heartbreaking is that it ends in unrepentance. But maybe the most important part of this patterning is the last part. So not only does God bring judgment, not only then does God long for repentance, but number three, then God allows suffering. You see, what's the image of God's people that we see again and again in the book of Revelation? but of martyrs, people who've experienced persecution, suffering, and even death because of their association with Jesus and his kingdom. And this suffering has been a part of the pattern of the church since it began because in this suffering, the brilliance of the gospel is actually on display. Tertullian, the early church father, said, we spring up in greater numbers the more we are mown down by you. The blood of the Christians is the seed of a new life. And in the same way, Jesus' suffering and death brings redemption to all of humankind. Our suffering, as followers of Jesus, participates in that work of redemption. That's the pattern back then, that's the pattern now, and that is the pattern to come. It may intensify as we get closer to Christ returning, but it is still a part of the pattern that we are to expect in walking with Christ. You see, Revelation, just as a reminder, is not just revealing what will happen, but what is happening. And in every generation, there are those who suffer on account of the testimony of Jesus. Those are his people. Remember, when no one else can stand, these are the people of God that are standing tall in every generation. John is exiled on Patmos, but he's standing. The early church is experiencing pressure and persecution, but they're standing. And still today, Because every culture, every culture misses part of the picture. And God's people are always chasing the heavenly city. We stand tall and actually live out with suffering, pointing to someone greater. You see, we can misunderstand the why that these followers of Jesus are suffering on the pages of the book of Revelation. You see, the book of Revelation is an extraordinary political critique of the abuses and the destructive power of Rome. It is not an apolitical text. Fascinating commentator Richard Bauckham says, thus it is a serious mistake to suppose that Revelation opposes the Roman Empire solely because of its persecution of Christians. Rather, Revelation advances a thoroughgoing prophetic critique of the system of Roman power. It is a critique which makes Revelation the most powerful piece of political resistance literature from the period of the early empire. It is not simply because Rome persecutes Christians that Christians must oppose Rome. Listen to this. Rather, it is because Christians must disassociate themselves from the evil of the Roman system that they are likely to suffer persecution and associate this rebellion with Jesus. Now, we're going to dive a little bit deeper next week into what it looks like to be a witness, which is a constant theme in the book of Revelation. But quickly, what that pattern means, we cannot miss this, is that this is true for your culture and my culture now, our culture. This time in history, here in the United States, too. Don't miss this. 
This isn't just happening in other cultures and in other countries. This is happening here. Where? Wherever God's kingdom values are maligned. For example, one space that we have seen utter persecution and suffering is in the minority church here in the United States. They've experienced untold persecution throughout history, which has led misreading and misunderstanding by the majority culture and many white churches, informing, frankly, some dehumanizing theology that's either explicit or implicit, that's engaged in a broader doctrinal structure or practice. And then what happens and has happened over the previous decades is that when white Christian leaders who seek to empathize and so stand with our minority brothers and sisters in their church context, what happens is then white theologians and white pastors are accused of all sorts of absurd things. Language like cultural Marxism, which means nothing. It's merely a pigeonhole term to shut someone up and to spur up some of our deepest fears about the worst forms of communism. Or language like CRT, we become overly concerned with any sort of interconnection. Or even using the language of the social gospel, thinking that it's merely a pietistic framework to save a couple souls, but we don't need to do anything in our surrounding creation, culture, or moment. This is what it looks like to stand in line with the purposes of God's kingdom and experience ostracization, suffering, alongside of those who are for Jesus and his purposes. And frankly, we're in really good company. Because in the first century Rome, Christians were accused of being atheists. Yes, accused of being atheists. To which they replied, no, we're not atheists. We just don't believe in your gods. And we don't believe in the gods you promote and the actions they promote and the practices they promote. We believe in a different king with a different kingdom. But yeah, you can't see your king and you can't see your kingdom. And so they thought they were atheists, but they had a whole different paradigm than the broader power structure of Rome. And it led to misunderstanding, suffering, and oppression. See, God is working. Even now, here in the United States, here in Kansas City, cultivating the ground for repentance. And our suffering is a part of that strategy, not a sign that we're failing in following Jesus. That is so important to recognize. So let me ask you this. Is this how you expect God to work through you? Is this the pattern you are expecting here now in this particular cultural moment? I mean, what were you expecting and why? Who or what has been informing your expectations as to what your life should be like right now? I mean, these are really important questions. These are heart level, gut level, often informing the broader paradigm and framework for how we lead our lives. Because listen, if we are to expect suffering and hardship and pain, what can we do? Because right? listen, suffering means a loss of influence. It means a loss of financial support. When you name the exploitation and the distortion, it usually comes at a financial cost. Suffering is also a reality of powerlessness, right? To the human means of change. So what can we do? This is why we need to understand this third how. If we are going to endure the sadness now. Number three, we need to embrace how powerful prayer is. Look with me again at chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
silence. 30 minutes of quiet. The beasts who never stop singing. Should I stop singing? You know what? This actually could work out great. I do that 30 minutes of silence thing, and then look at that. The Lord provides. <laughs> ben in the back. Yeah, that's good. It's like nice and quiet. It's almost like it's in the back of the room. That sounds good. It's like the quiet amen in some of those like awkward preaching videos. And that's what I was talking about. You got right into the CRT, huh? He said it. I hope this helps our people. Is that one done too? Or was that one going the whole time? That one's still going. Well, maybe we can do right to the break. Is that okay? And just plan on that one being like, yeah. okay. okay. If that's okay with you. Because I, I have no idea how to pick up from that. Yeah, let's just go. It break. took me so much guts just to say it, frankly. <laughs> Whatever. It's dumb. Break. All right. Go from the break. The audio went north. Just going. That's fine. It's back recording. Mm. No angels singing, no beasts crying out, no elders shouting, laying down their crowns. The, nor the noise of earth wasn't allowed to interrupt the silence of heaven. And what were they listening to? What were they listening for? But the prayers of the martyrs, of those suffering. And one of the most astounding aspects of this whole picture is that God is actually listening. God is listening. He's gathering our prayers. He's finishing his purposes, and our prayers will be answered in his time. Now, a quick aside, prayer is never assumed to be alone. Okay, Prayer is the handmaiden of public faithfulness and public witness in the public square. So in the midst of this, it always accompanies faithful presence. And yet... Prayer is often all the sufferer has left. And it's often overlooked by the powerful, those who have other means at their disposal. So those who know suffering well because they love their Savior well actually know prayer perfectly well. Or as the poet George Herbert said, prayer is reversed thunder. It rises to heaven... And when it returns, it actually shakes the earth. And here we actually come to see that it's the catalyst for God's judgment moving forward. Which some of you may be thinking, well, how, how are they praying for justice? How are they praying for judgment? What about God's mercy? What about loving our enemies? Here's the thing. When God's kingdom comes, other kingdoms are shaken. Those who have repented and turned to the true king and his kingdom find freedom, while others who unrepentantly perpetuate unrighteousness or injustice, they will experience upheaval. When falsehood is exposed, liars will be ashamed. 
When abuse is stopped, abusers will feel maligned. When exploitation halts, oppressors experience financial loss. When idolatry is overturned, those who profited actually now feel more vulnerable. For example, you go to Acts and you see the Apostle Paul preaching in Ephesus and across Asia. And what happens? The silversmiths get ticked. Because the whole market for creating these idols is being disrupted. And so they come to actually bring a riot against Paul because he's disrupting their whole society and the way in which it functions and how it works. When we pray for God's glorious goodness to come, he will actually plow out the rot and dig out the dead. And so there is an urgency, not an anxiety. It doesn't hang on us, it still hangs on him, but an urgency to pray. The ending prayer that's at the end of the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so today, I want to leave you with an action item. All right, so we asked some questions about what we're expecting, some tools on how to navigate the text, but here's a specific action item. Turn every input into prayer. The brilliant pastor Robert Murray McShane invites us to turn our Bibles into prayer. When you read a passage, don't just go looking for information. Go looking for formation, for the content to actually pray back to God that it might form your loves and actually continue to inform the way you speak to God and think about God when you speak to him. Allow news to be an avenue for prayer, asking God to give you discernment, to be able to understand the times and what his kingdom agenda is actually pushing forward and where other kingdom agendas are pushing against him. Allow Facebook to be an avenue for prayer. As the feeds come down, don't just look at posts as an opportunity to respond, to argue, to rebuke, or to feel validated. Instead, use those posts as an opportunity for prayer, praying that God would continue to nurture our hearts together and guide us into truth, prayers for comfort and care and concern, or maybe even Slack at work when you're going through your Slack. It's like, God, would you give me the power to actually carry out good work well done? Once again, now, this won't be an avenue of escaping suffering. And often these prayers guide us into deeper suffering rather than away. But we can know that God will work in his perfect timing. He's listening. He's working. And he will shake things up. I love the way Eugene Peterson writes. He said, when we know that delay is not procrastination that our waiting is not because of someone's indifference, that we have not been forgotten, and the waiting is not intolerable. How do we endure the sadness? How do we endure it now? By having a better grasp of these three hows and leaning into them. Until the Jesus, the day Jesus indeed does come back. I mean, can you imagine if... Seeing what we see here, what has been apocalypse, what has been revealed. Prayer wasn't our last resort, but our first and fiercest of weapons. If we expected suffering rather than fearing that our comfortable lives might be disrupted, just like Jesus, we would actually go looking and experiencing daily prayer, looking for communion with God and expecting suffering as a part of our story. Then maybe, just maybe, in the same way that an earthquake shook the world at the death of Jesus... So to our prayer-filled suffering and death for Jesus and his kingdom might shake up this world to repentance. May it be so. For me, for you, for us. Now's the time. Let's pray. 
God, we pray just a word of gratitude for training us on what to expect in every cultural moment. May we not have blinders due to where we sit or how we see the world because of our cultural realities that we miss what you're doing. Give us courage to jump in on your purposes when it invites suffering. Give us wisdom and discipline to continue to cry out in daily prayer to you, knowing that you hear us. And God, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing all sorts of persecution, some losing their lives for their faith, some losing much influence, comfort, being maligned, discounted by family, ostracized. God, we pray, Lord, that you would bring them comfort, that you would bring them joy, and that they would rest in you in the work that you're doing in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.